Welcome back to another episode of the podcast Student by Software Engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and today I'm joined with Ben Turner. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great, Perry. Thank you so much. I keep on saying this, but you are probably one of the busiest men I've probably met so far. Just given like, given all the stuff that you've done in the past years and even decades, and this is honestly my pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, well, yeah, it's uh, definitely a, the pleasure is all mine as far as being able to, to talk with yourself and uh, meet you and catch up as we've been recently doing. Um, yeah, it really is, is great to, to get an opportunity to meet you and really learn about all the things you're, uh, you're getting into. Yeah, and likewise, I'm definitely going to be doing the other way around, just picking out the brain and figure out, you know, even more knowledge. So I think, like, people have read the title. Um, but the thing is, can you give us a brief description of who is Ben Turner and, you know, what you've been up to? Uh, gosh, um, you know, where to start? Uh, well, I guess uh, my name is Ben Turner. Uh, I've been doing software now for going on uh, 24, 25 years. Uh, kind of got into it as part of the big 90s dot-com boom and bust, um, and then survived through the bust and have been, you know, doing nothing but stacking more success upon more success as I've gone. You know, I've had the, been very fortunate to be involved with a lot of successful organizations and companies because um, I'll very rarely say it was my my responsibility. I'm the cause of, of them being successful. So uh, I've been very fortunate in my career. I mean, that's great. I mean, you're already throwing out words like the 90s boom. And I feel like that has been more prominent even nowadays because people are seeing it's going to happen again. <laughs> I mean, this is like the grimmer part where like, well, we're 20, 20, 21 now. And uh, people are seeing that the cycle is going to come back and it's going to be like the, the whole tech rush, you know, last year, the whole like valuation of tech company as it going absolutely wild. And it was kind of like a similar feeling from what happened back then. So, I mean, now that you think about the 90s boom and bust or whatever, I just want to throw in the word Y2K. I feel like we're going to be talking about that. So I'm going to be so, so excited to dive into that. But no, that's great. Um, and just a quick one, where are you based currently? Just so that we have a bit of context. Yeah, so currently I'm in the uh, beautiful sunny state of Colorado up here in uh, Boulder, Colorado. So I'm kind of the north end of the Denver metro area. And that's always great because I feel like the tech scene, we could definitely dive into, you know, what kind of tech scene looks like over there, what kind of influence you had. But actually, speaking of influence, though, um, were you born and raised in Colorado, actually? Or like, where, you know, what was the context of, you know, growing up? Where was that? Gosh, um, so I was, uh, I was, I was an army brat. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term. Uh, but my, my parents were in the military and so I not really from anywhere, kind of a citizen of the world from that sense. Um, just because I was born in, in West Germany at the time. Uh, and then we moved very frequently just about every two years up until I was about 16. Uh, so, so yeah, so it's really tough to always pinpoint and say, where are you from? Cause I don't really have any one place in particular. <laughs> But even that, that kind of just expand the amount of like views that you had. And views, I mean like literally views with your eyes, but views of like different parts of the world, right? Like the different cultures that kind of influences you. And then when you think about that and how it actually related to your, I guess, software engineering career, that it's a good time to explore that a little bit. So um, do you remember, I guess during that growing up phase, then, do you remember any time playing with technology or was it just like absorbing whatever they had available at that culture? Yeah, it was, uh, gosh, uh, the first time I really kind of dove in and got kind of hands-on dirty with technology. Uh, I was back in probably my third grade uh, classroom. We had a computer science, uh, kind of a, uh, a few weeks of computers, uh, quote-unquote computers back then. I don't believe the science kind of term was applied to it yet, but uh, I got a chance to really dig into some Apple IIEs um, and got a chance to really get familiar with QBasic and you know some of the other kind of uh, early languages that are out there. So you got access to Apple hardware at that time. 
I'm, I'm guessing that you were probably just jumping around. Like, where was that specifically? Because I'm always fascinated in terms of like, nowadays we assume that an iPhone is going to be easily shipped to these like more remote places just because they figure out the whole operations. But we're talking about maybe like a couple of decades ago that Apple back then was not this behemoth of being able to have this really good process operations and getting every hardware to everywhere. So I'm actually a little bit fascinated in terms of how did that happen? How did you end up at a school that had access to that? Yeah, it's um, it's really kind of a bizarre story because if I think about it myself, it doesn't really stand out as me as like being a school uh, kind of district that would have access to those kind of resources and funds. But I was down in Austin, Texas, uh, in the Round Rock School District, about mid '80s, um, and yeah, we had a full-on room full of Apple IIe computers just sitting there waiting for you know us little snot-nosed kids to come in and start punching away at the keys. That is so good. <laughs> I can imagine that. Um, and when you're saying at least they had a bit of direction to it. So like, yeah, you could have a couple of group of people and then you have somebody. Do you remember, do you remember who that somebody was? Like what, I guess, their background was? What was their reason to be doing these kind of quote unquote computer science classes? Yeah, gosh, so I know the, the teacher that I had at the time was named Mrs. Bartu, um, and I'm trying to think of what the actual cause or drive for them to have those computer courses was, because, you know, as I said, looking back on it now, it's, you know, obviously a big town in Texas, um, but it's not, you know, being that it's from Texas, not exactly the place I would think, you know, that you know, it's just a hotbed or a spring full of technology. Um, so, yeah, so I, I really, I probably should do some more research into that, because I don't have a great answer for that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a foundation that, that I think back very fondly of. And when I think about my career, I kind of see it as starting at that point. Um, and then it was really several years between that point that I actually started really getting back involved in technology. Um, kind of all came up at once almost 10 years later. So so the the moment when you're describing your story in terms of like, oh, yeah, they got exposed to us with these like machines to begin with. And the next thing you know, like, okay, you've done it back of your mind. But then when you revisit, it, it's like, oh, this is the opening to the world and everything that you've done up till today. That is always fascinating. So I'm great. And even just to be a little bit more technical is remember what you were doing on that machine specifically? Like, what did you learn? Did you learn like for loops? Or was I even for loops back then? Yeah, we did. Uh, we actually did uh, do loops. Um, so it wasn't a for loop. It was a do while on uh, wind. Um, but yeah, it was uh, just looping and painting the screen and blocks with uh, various different kind of 16-bit colors. Um, and I just remember having a big smiley face with a pink background. Yeah, you, you'll have to dig it back up. <laughs> it's definitely, it definitely exists out there somewhere. So, And um, what was the language, actually? I'm always fascinated by this because people talk about all these more, you know, older language like Fortran, COBOL, and all the fun, fun, fun stuff, even Visual Basic back then, probably. Well, that one was QBasic. Um, yeah, so QBasic, uh, QuickBasic back in, even before the Visual Basic days. Um, this is kind of one of the, the, the OG basic languages that sat before Visual Basic. Um, but I did kind of see that going from QBasic, and then when I started actually getting back into computer science more properly, uh, basically QBasic and Visual Basic was the first languages that they really broke us into. And that's actually really great because I did talk to another guest recently, actually, and they were saying that, um, I mean, they were a little bit younger than I am, so they probably went to high school maybe like seven years ago or something, but um, they were saying that the computer class that they took during high school was a basic class. So I don't remember which basic it was, but that was something that I guess transcended through time, you know? <laughs> um, I never got exposed to it, so I think I might have to revisit that, you know, again at some point, so... Well, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're well beyond that now as far as, uh, and that's really one of the things that kind of set me up as my foundation in my career is helping to kind of remove the hesitancy of, of getting involved and getting your hands on the code and the actual program. Because um, that class above all else really taught me that, you know, the best experience is by getting in the seat and starting to go. 
Um, so that's really been nothing but invaluable throughout my entire career ever since. Yes. And I totally 100% agree with that. It's like when you do get put in that seat, that's kind of where your eyes just triple. You just see so much more of the world. And then the way I would put it is nowadays, fortunately, there's a lot more tools that you could do. You could even do this alone at home if you want to get into it, which is great. And I really want to give credit to everything out there, all the organization out there that is making this, you know, path easier. But I do know back then it was a very different landscape. And I'm very thankful that you even got the chance to really just, you know, be in that seat at that time to play with these Apple machines in that setting. So, yeah. And as, I mean, as I said, it definitely has just been nothing but just immensely valuable for me throughout my entire career just to teach me to get involved because um, that's the best way that you're going to actually get understanding of either the languages or the concepts and technologies. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that I do actually want to point out is other than um, obviously the, all these stuff that directly affected your technology career coming up, did you have any like hobbies slash passions back in the day that you clearly remember? Like, did you skateboard? Did you do anything like, you know, drawing back then? Um, yeah, so I was uh, involved in quite a bit of arts uh, and fine arts. That's actually where I thought I was going to head as I was leaving high school, um, but also was big into sports as well. Uh, I was real big into the kind of American football. Uh, so, you know, kind of one of those dumb meathead jocks, um, a bit of a larger fella at 6'5". I uh, was upwards of 300 pounds at a, at a point, um, all for the purposes of playing sports. That's one thing I do love to see is that uh, the people that do end up in tech at the end of the day have such a different story. I feel like, obviously, there's a good chunk of us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point myself out there that I did do a comp side degree. But if you look at the other influences that everybody has in their story of getting into tech, like sports-wise, I did love. I played a lot of lacrosse growing up. So that's one of the things that I actually have completely enjoy nowadays. I play a lot more soccer, you know. Or football for the Europeans out there, um, but even back then, I feel like everybody has their own yo, their own little story, their own little background in terms of how they got there and everything. So that is always good to hear. And one of the good thing is if we talk about the educational background at this point. So yes, you did go to elementary school, high school with you know very interesting different views of the world already, just because the different influences that you've had. Um, what did that look like after high school? I guess because I feel like that's usually a pivotal moment for people to to decide what they want to get into. Yeah, I mean, um, so gosh, so school for me was, uh, I, I look back on it and kind of consider myself very fortunate if you look at it from the perspective of not wanting to do a lot of work and put in a lot of effort because, uh, by virtue of moving around a lot in every couple of years, um, I think it's changed now, but back then the American school system seemed to be that they would default to assuming that whatever you did at the previous place was beyond what they're doing, having people do now. Um, so by virtue of that, I ended up kind of getting, uh, getting, here they call it getting clepped out, um, but getting clepped out of a lot of courses saying, oh, well, this person's already taken that sort of an equivalent course in their previous grade, so we'll just say that they've passed it, uh, which basically meant that I was a sophomore high school student that had nothing but electives for basically the last two and a half years of their high school career. Um, which afforded me a lot of opportunity to get involved in a lot of different things, such as jewel craft. Uh, I did a little bit more computer science there in high school, um, which all prepared me to leave high school and, and uh, make the decision uh, that while I wanted to attend college, um, certainly at that point did not know what I would be getting into. Yeah, I mean, even throwing in the jewelry class, like I think that's always fascinating at that point. Um, and this is the moment actually that you mentioned that you already revisited Kamsai. Like, did you notice? A major difference given those like you know few years in between so i'm guessing like back then the first time you kind of exposed it was i think you said grade three or am i still getting that wrong yeah grade three that's correct yeah that's actually pretty insane so grade three you already got exposed a little bit whether it's for loop at that time in the high school level comp side was that similar in terms of topics or did they actually expand a little bit more with the concept in terms of maybe like object oriented or 
It was very different. I uh, had not gotten into object-oriented, but at that point was getting into more language structures. Um, was also explaining the various different things that computers could be used to do. At this point, we were kind of early, mid-90s. Uh, so at that point, high school seemingly were trying to rapidly kind of catch up. Um, I know the school I was attending kind of considered itself to be a really prestigious high school, so um, they wanted to have all the best hardware, all the best gear, uh, which afforded me the opportunity to really get involved with, at the time, Windows 95. In 1995, it was ridiculous, I know. Um, but yeah, they had the funds to do that, and so therefore that's when I started actually getting into Visual Basic 4.0 and uh, all the way up to 6.0 for my senior year. That is actually really, really cool. I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Windows 95 because my, my dad was kind of, you know, he, he loved computers, whether it's to use it to just browse or whatever it is. And I do remember we did have a proper Windows 95 just sitting at home at all times. And that closing screen, that was one of the <laughs> most memorable thing that you can think about the Windows 95. Um, resources, what did we talk about there in terms of like, yes, you, ha you could go to school for that kind of stuff. What, what kind of other resources out there? Because nowadays it's really easy for any of us to just go onto the browser and just, you know, Google a lot of things out there. What did that look like back then? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I remember, so, yeah, I mean, kind of fast-forwarding a few years after I'd been in college for about a year, still didn't really have a great idea on kind of what the landscape looked like. Um, I remember having to rely a lot on uh, kind of my family's connections to their various different professional networks, uh, which allowed me to get involved with uh, really computer software engineering in the real world at the time for Samsonite, as my folks worked for Samsonite. Um, yeah, and then there was a, a few kind of user groups, but I, I wouldn't call it you know, back in the mid to late 90s that there was really a ton of uh, social kind of networks that you could really get involved with, um, at least for those starting, you know, individual startup type folks. Um, really, it was until about Y2K happened that that's when I finally started to really get connected in with the, the technology scene um, and started to really kind of fully understand where the resources were and how to actually engage those and, and make them work for you. Oh, wow. And then obviously I have like a million questions about Y2K. So um, so after high school, you went to college at the end. Was that directly to a technology program? What, what exactly was that? Yeah. One? Um, so I went to uh, yeah, I went to a very prestigious kind of tech school. Uh, they like to call themselves the ninth best engineering school in the United States. It was actually South Dakota Tech. Um, so I went there to study biology and uh, health. So it was very unusual kind of study pattern for someone going to a high tech school with, you know, the civil engineering, the metallurgical engineering, chemical engineering and computer engineering. And here I was trying to take uh, basically a sports medicine program. That was really the first time I had an opportunity to really engage with, you know, kind of the, the community, if you will, uh, with all the other computer science majors and really try, start to appreciate the, the different kind of culture and, and group that forms up around that comparatively to the athletic side where, you know, I was actually in, in college on uh, a partial scholarship for football. So, you know, I was very connected with kind of the meathead jocks, um, which is actually one of the reasons why, you know, my, my domain name is dot jock. So it's still kind of carrying forward that athletics uh, link from my past. <laughs> that's actually funny now they put it. I never noticed that, but that's actually really, really hilarious. And it also got a little bit creepy at some point, just because I keep on telling the story where I actually started my university uh, degree in physiology and math. So that was very heavy in bio. And I definitely did take a applicable bio class and physiology class during that time. And then next thing you know, at least for my story, I just, I mean, had a drop down on the website portal and I just switched to computer science at the time, uh, you know, that way. But I'm guessing that back then was slightly different if you wanted to switch programs at the end. So um, 
how how long was the the whole degree, or how did that look like before you got jumped into the whole full blown working full time as a as a technology person? Yeah, so it probably took me about a year from the time of being in college until I was finally full time working.、Um, and there's kind of a story there in that you know after my freshman year of college, I broke my neck, so I became an injured、uh, college athlete,、um, and that. Time and from losing a lot of weight and realizing I didn't want to have to put the weight back on to play again,、um, that's when I finally started connecting the dots and you know seeing the different people there were to, to hang out with and socialize with and you know really connecting with the computer group.、Um, and yeah, that's that's when I, I guess I found my home and and from there you know the Y two K happening and everybody and their mothers seemed to be hiring anyone that you know at the time it wasn't we're looking for someone that's an expert in Y two K and the things we need to fix it. They were more so looking for anybody that just wasn't intimidated. And afraid by computers, so that they could get in there and do the diagnostic work they needed to do,、uh, and catalog those systems correctly. Yeah, I'm actually so fascinated that、uh, when you're mentioning like the ninth best engineering, like just being able to be exposed to this more more commonly, this frequency, this collision of like people that have this tech mindset. I think I think nowadays, obviously, they'll have all these like crazy big engineering schools. So I think、um, I think San Jose has a lot of those big ones. I'm pretty sure it happens nowadays. But then when you talk about back then, like I'm actually really fascinated how that happened to begin with.、Um, for the people that are not exactly super familiar with what is Y2K, how about we start with that? Because I'm gonna go a little bit into that. <laughs> Oh goodness,、um, you know. So yeah, what what is it、uh, at the end of the day?、Um, so this is the rolling over of the year from 1999 to 2000,、um, and a lot of software engineers、uh, back in the day would use the small date format、uh, to capture the actual date of whatever the transaction we're talking about, whatever the data recording、uh, timestamp that we're discussing,、um, and through the capture of that date and through the trying to reserve space, because of course back in the 60s and 70s,、uh, space was incredibly expensive. So,、uh, if you could make things smaller by only having to reference a two-digit year, then you were really ahead of the game,、uh, and that's what a lot of software did: is bake in those two-digit year formats, so that when the year 2000 was approaching, no one was quite certain what was going to happen. Um, and as you know, we would go on to find out, really not much of anything happened.、Uh, so it seemed like a whole lot of unnecessary kind of、uh, concern and worry by the industry and the world, really,、um, over this challenge that, at the end of the day, resulted in next to nothing.、Uh, which you could either say meant that all the Y2K work was 100% successful. Or really, from what's more my view, all the Y2K work was probably a bit of overkill.、Um, however, it's not something I'm going to complain about because it's what got me kind of launched into where I'm at today. What I do want to put into perspective is that you did have these massive infrastructures like banks, hospitals, all that that do rely on the fact that、uh, this could go very, very wrong if it wasn't you know tackled properly. So I did understand the concern why people had it back then. And then when you're saying that it happened and worked 100% successfully, like that is also a very interesting view on it. I think that's completely hilarious to think about. So I'm, I'm a little bit nervous or leery of saying that hey, we were successful because、um, I'm sure there's a lot of ways you could point to and say, well, it wasn't successful because of X, Y, or Z.、Um, but at the end of the day, you know, here we are.、Uh, we didn't have some kind of you know meltdown point at the year 2000 that we're still recovering from now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what's the next one? Year ten thousand? I mean, I'm not gonna be there to find out. Yeah, it's a potential.、Uh, that's for sure.、I'm、trying to think of, although there's probably a few others we'll find well before then. I'm guessing. <laughs> one of the, one of the interesting thing actually is that I guess back then they were still like APIs, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like that、um, if you. Depend on an API from a third party. I don't know because nowadays when you talk about microservices, when you yeah, I mean, so there there were APIs. 
Yeah, I think from from my perspective, there were definitely APIs that were available back then. I think it was more so a matter of um, because they weren't microservices that were available or that were widely accessible online in the web format as we know them today so much uh, as they would be APIs into the system that you're working on. So, you know, as you're looking at Microsoft products with the OLE uh, and ActiveX libraries and technologies that they put together, um, I'm trying to think generally speaking at the end of the 90s, start of the 2000s, when you were talking about APIs, you were usually talking about uh, an API that sat or existed on your workstation that you could then access to do other amazing things like libraries, uh, graphics, image processing libraries, or uh, other libraries that you could gain access to. Okay, cool. Because I did try to relate in terms of like today, imagine if something like the whole date format is breaking because everybody a lot of a lot of times agree on a date format, for example. Um, there would be a lot of trouble because a lot of codes that you use is you know, not proprietary. You're probably using the package from like somebody else. And then if they have to update their API, it's going to break completely what you're using depending on. I guess the, like the, the rippling effect, the avalanche is going to be a lot you know, crazier nowadays. So fortunately, yeah, hopefully they've patched the Y2K proper enough that we're not going to encounter any of that. But um, it is great to hear that. That kind of just propelled you into the whole like, tech world at that point. So one thing that I do remember you saying is that Everybody was just hiring for Y2K. Um, what exactly was were the roles? What exactly were you were you you know coding to to do at that time? Because I guess like that's kind of where you, your first full time job happened. Yeah, although um, so at that company, I wasn't doing a lot of professional software engineering or software authoring. Uh, at the time, it was a lot of running ghost diagnostic tools to just effectively take a snapshot of the system so that you could then report back to a centralized database um, that at various different sites, you know, this is for uh, TCI Media Services, which is, you know, through consolidation in the industry is a used to be a large cable provider. Um, and, you know, eventually they got rolled up into AT&T, but they needed to effectively catalog their entire Windows network across the entire globe um, and each location they had they would have about anywhere between 20 and 50 workstations uh, and so the idea is that you would run these programs capture this information and then come back and have it all centralized into a single spot um, that then other applications or other groups could then work against that data and information to then strategize what needed to be accomplished in order to make that site or that workstation safe for y2k Wow, it kind of sounds like it's it's a bit meshing in terms of the digitalization of just everything. Like this is it, it took obviously decades to do it, but it feels so much more prominent prominent. Sorry, when you're describing it that way, so I guess this is definitely opening my eye when I talk about that. Yeah, and back then uh, we were talking about entire offices that would be managed effectively by one or two people that had access to a 56k modem. Uh, oh, they have internet on that side of the group. We don't have internet over here, though. So, it, yeah, today you would look at it and say, well, why wouldn't they just, you know, query that network or those different nodes and ask, you know, what software is they're running? Um, and, yeah, it's back then because, you know, Windows NT networking service was kind of the, the rave. And unless you had that reliable internet connection, then you, you were virtually never going to connect to that office network. That's such a great story. I guess you live and you learn. I feel like a lot of people <laughs> will be looking back at that as a really good lesson. And, you know, from then on, not not try to repeat it at all then. Um, one of the things that I, I'm always fascinated with is, uh, I guess everybody remembers their first full-time you know, software engineering job. What did that look like for you? Where was it and what were you doing? Yeah, gosh. So, um, so it was coming off that Y2K project, which I ended up leaving early to at the time, quote unquote, return to college. Um, although I got back into school for, I want to say maybe four weeks and then realized, you know, I got to get the heck out of here. 
Um, but you know, at the time I had gone from being basically a $75 an hour, well overcompensated, uh, technology, uh, worker, um, to once again, not being afraid to tell a company or an organization, yeah, I don't have any problem with doing that HTML or getting involved with that classic ASP, getting involved with that MSSQL database 6.5 at the time. Um, and it was my lack of apprehension to approach those things that really is what got me the job rapidly right after that Y2K experience. So I'm guessing even the baggage of knowledge and skills that you've already had at that point, it's absolutely valuable, right? When you're naming all these technologies that are still present today, um, HTML, like when we're talking about uh, ASP and also the SQL stuff, like 100% of a lot of people are using it, different version, fortunately. But um, so that was uh, your first role. Where was that based? Was that still based in South Dakota or was it a, what kind of company was it? That's back here in Colorado at that point. Um, and that's actually going from the Y2K hiring craze to kind of wrapping that up to immediately diving right into the dot-com boom. Because uh, I went to go work for an, an online financial advisory service that was effectively an email newsletter service um, that would send out emails. Uh, we had several millions in our database that of that, maybe about 20% were actually subscribing members that would pay between 20 and $50 a month for access to the financial service. Um, but it also gave me a great vantage point as I'm Basically, learning the software engineering on the one hand, uh, getting a chance to be connected to all the 90s boom uh, and bust of the, the, the Wall Street markets uh, that was going all over the place at the time. Um, and yeah, being at that financial advisory service kind of got a front row seat where everyone was monitoring and watching that news all day long and living it. Uh, so yeah, it really feels like I was kind of buried inside kind of the belly of the beast while that was going on. And I think that's why I have such a strong connection to it today and uh, speak so, uh, so, so fondly of the time, but also speak, you know, from firsthand knowledge. Yeah, I mean, even getting uh, the exposure to the finance industry at such a, I guess, young age, that's always something that is going to be definitely memorable. Uh, unfortunately, I have not worked in the finance industry yet. I'm not going to say it's never going to happen, but I feel like even from your perspective, from being inside over there, um, if we talk about the technology then, so you're working um, as a software engineer there, what, what, I guess like what kind of stack, enterprise stack we're talking about here? Because I feel like a lot of times, yes, I can make my own project, I can make, you know, whatever, I, I can play around with PayPal's API, for example, but for an actual company at that time working in the finance industry, what did it look like a bit? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it kind of had a, an unusual start because um, I actually came in to interview with that company uh, and then got brought back my first day. And I was told the person that I interviewed with was no longer there because, surprise, you replaced them. Um, and they were a senior ASP, dot, or ASP uh, engineer, software engineer. Uh, it was actually Dan Appleman who went on to write a few books on ASP Plus at the time and it became ASP.net. Um, but yeah, it was uh, doing a lot of software work uh, using classic ASP, uh, but really kind of the, the big bulk of the work came down to the databases um, because at the end of the day, the database is the data is gold. Uh, that's what the, really the, the, the opportunity is, is to collect all that contact information on customers so that you can remarket to them. Um, so really kind of understanding that and then starting to really start to work with large data sets, or at least large at the time of several millions of rows. Um, you know, and then that helped to springboard me into years later where I'm using various other database engines um, and really coming to the understanding that databases are really largely all the same. Um, just regardless of the flavor you're using, you're, you're all still doing the same types of works and the same types of uh, interactions with the information. Yeah, and that was uh, my first technical stack was uh, largely Microsoft dominated. Uh, did a, as you know, I mentioned Visual Basic, did a little bit of Visual Basic there as well, uh, especially VB6. 
which was all the great, you know, new shiny object back in the day, um, writing a lot of active LDLs, uh, which I thought at the time was just absolutely phenomenal. Look at this. You can actually test code and testable DLLs without having to load up the web browser or even the web server. Um, so I thought, you know, hey, I was, I had finally stumbled upon something magical here. And then, you know, here we are later. That seems so inconsequential. Um, but, but yeah, that was uh, at least my thoughts at the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm so thankful you actually bring up all these. I mean, context-wise, this sounds very like web-based technologies, um, which is actually such a fun thing to talk about because I feel like I've, I've spoken to enough people that have viewed uh, the tech scene at that time, and not everybody actually, you know, stumbles onto the the web-based world of you know software engineering back then. A lot of them might end up being in the you know uh, building software directly for a specific hardware. So, example, if you, if you were Apple engineer back then, you'd be building very specific stuff and not exactly web-related. So, having even your perspective of being exposed to this web technology back then of how, you know, APIs work and everything. Like my equivalent of today, that's what I fortunately get to see a lot in my day to day. My day to day job is that I do work with a lot of tech web technology, sorry. And just seeing this parallel of it, I'm, I'm absolutely so fascinated. And yeah, I was going to say like the databases, you can't run away from it. Even though nowadays it's not exactly just SQL, there's like all these other ones. No SQL is probably the other big category that, in, that includes a lot of the other ones. Uh, we do have to work yeah, with. Yeah, non-relational. Exactly. We do have to work with like millions and millions and millions of rows of data at the end of the day. So I think that was really fun in terms of like, okay, fine. You got the exposure to the first like, you know, first full-time job. I, I, I love talking about that. And then um, did you stay in the same industry actually? Did you end up staying in the finance industry? Or where did that lead you to? Gosh. Uh, yeah, no. Um, so, you know, I kind of uh, did one of those terrible things back in the 90s and, you know, I ended up uh, marrying someone I was working with. Uh, and because of that, I decided, okay, I got to basically leave this job, even though I, I thought I was doing really successfully there, was on already in the management. Um, so, but that allowed me to go from that job in the financial world to then being the Microsoft uh, expert at a consulting company um, that helped me to kind of bridge the gap. You know, as you were mentioning there that, you know, databases being so ubiquitous, that's actually the next stop in my uh, job is my career is where I learned that um, by being involved with a, a consulting company, um, you know, where we were effectively kind of rented out to various different customers on various engagements. Um, and then I was always referred to as the Microsoft specialist because largely the team I was working with were largely open source or AX, AS400 uh, server kind of engineer or more kind of sysadmin type uh, individuals than they were software engineers. Um, but that's when I got to finally realize and understand that, hey, when we're talking about voicemail systems for the local phone company, for instance, that's just a database that's sitting behind there. It's just got an interface. It's attached to a phone that you use your keypad to, to navigate. Um, but that helped really break it down for me. I mean, I, I, I'm grinning, obviously, just because we're talking about the, uh, the database. And the one of the funny sayings that you hear nowadays is that people will consider Excel and Airtable like databases. And I feel like... This parallel of thinking back then is that it, I'm not going to say it kind of makes it sound dumb, but sometimes it just simplifies it. And it is true that nowadays there's a lot of tools out there that kind of simplifies the concept of databases and it makes stuff work, right? People can use an Excel, Excel sheet to, you know, if you're going to keep track of newsletter emails, for example, they do do that nowadays. And it is powerful enough to, you know, accomplish whatever feature and task that you need. So that's when you were talking about all these, you know, uh, projects that you had to do at the consultancy, consultant company that, you know, the, the, the mind of an engineer kind of thinks the same all across years, decades, or whatever you want to call it. And I feel like maybe down the line, and this conversation is going to pop up again. Um, one of the fascinating points you did mention is uh, going from, I guess, software engineer to management. Um, at what point did you realize that you got into management? Because I feel like nowadays a lot of people would think about it and they'll be like, 
Oh, yeah. Like, until you, obviously, title change is, like, an obvious thing. But at what point did you start having responsibility, actually, of the more management side of the engineering world? Yeah, this is a, so this is where I find it's, it's really different from at least other professionals that I've uh, come across. And that is uh, really within the first year of my first job. Um, and that was, you know, as I mentioned, coming in and, and hearing that the person that interviewed me was actually let go um, because I was being brought in as the cheaper alternative because that person was trying to get into management themselves. Um, but from that moment forward, um, you know, I was effectively a junior software engineer, but then I rapidly was advancing to software engineer to senior my short stop as a senior engineer only being to kind of facilitate them moving me into dev management. Um, and that was being done because of the relationships I had built, not only with the person that directly uh, was responsible for me, but then for all my additional teammates. And I kind of liken that back to, you know, my experience being an army brat and moving so often and frequently, I have to learn to, you know, really communicate and connect with people rapidly. Um, and then for a very short time. So if I was going to kind of uh, make relationships and friendships, then, um, you know, usually just knowing that I have a, a short time with that person, you know, and I still kind of have this in some of the relationships I built today. Um, but just knowing that I'll likely only know this person for a short time because I'll be moving soon. So uh, it caused me to really escalate, you know, how I, you know, engage with folks and, and really kind of collect friends. Um, and I think that's really played very positively throughout my career history. Uh, it's enabled me to really connect with people really rapidly, even if they have, may have diverse backgrounds, very diverse backgrounds. Um, and even though, you know, two team members may be at odds with one another, but um, I've managed to successfully kind of form friendships with both of them that are equally strong, um, although they are significantly different. And as I said, that I liken that back to my experience as an army brat moving around and being forced to kind of always step outside of that comfort area. Um, so yeah, really about the first year of my career, realizing I'm headed towards management. Um, and that allowed me to make that decision, you know, is this where I really want to be or do I want to stay being a software engineer? Um, yeah. And then the, the next job after the consulting firm I mentioned there, I uh, was actually into a title of director. So really at that point, it was kind of no looking back from there, you know, and that's when I started to connect the dots as far as how you build a career and start collecting titles as you go. Um, and that's kind of just been my guiding light ever since is, you know, what's that next opportunity? You know, what level of responsibility is that in the new organization? Um, and that, you know, really usually signals to me whether I'm, I'm really going to be interested in that role or not. Definitely put a lot of color onto that, and I think that's always so interesting to talk about. One of the things that you mentioned is communication. Uh, I keep on saying communi communication is key in the software engineering world. Whether you know, a lot of times you'll picture is that no, you need to just stare at a screen. That's all that you interact with. I think in the bigger picture, as you get into it, you realize that communication is so valuable. It's necessary. I think <laughs> I think it, it needs to be there for any software engineers out there. And then when you're talking, when you love that and then all the other soft skills, I feel like that's something that you really embrace. And then that's something that you definitely like live through and you're still living through anyways. And this is kind of where the decisions come in. This is where the, what do I do now kind of thing? Cause those will affect, oh yeah, should I go into management or should I go? Well, I mean, in today's terms, I guess, like what I've been seeing personally is more, you kind of have like two different paths for engineers. You have the IC path, which is individual contributor, or you go into kind of like a engineering manager route. So they, it is kind of this fork that happens. And hearing you talk about that kind of, you know, experience from back then, it's so similar to what it is today. And I feel like today's influence is definitely coming from back then. So I think that's really, really fun. Um, one thing that I do like diving into in terms of just like number wise is for me, when I, uh, when I look at software engineering, when you work as a full-time software engineer, like 90% plus of the time you are coding. 
did that shift very, very quickly over time? Like back when, uh, when you got to the con- uh, consultant company, did that shift really quickly in terms of like, was it 50-50 split in terms of doing 50% coding and 50% just more m- like managing roles? Like what did that proportion look like? Yeah, I'd say um, definitely in the consulting company, it was uh, very different. I mean, I didn't own the consulting company. I was just, you know, another team member. Um, however, you know, you're responsible largely for your own work that you're doing, especially if you're on the bench. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing to effectively make you more valuable for the organization and more valuable for that next, cu- next customer engagement that you're going to have, um, which is what really drove me to... You mentioned, you know, the breakdown of time. I usually liken it to, I don't know that from my perspective, the breakdown really changes all that much. It's just you still do that 100% of the software engineering, but then you add another 100% on top of that of management. And, you know, then you're talking up in the 70, 80 hours per week, no problem. Um, at least that's been kind of my experience going forward. Uh, that the software engineering time seems to be somewhat, you know, consistent throughout my whole career. It's just been the everything else that's going on on top of it. You know, instead of effectively spending 80 hours of just pure coding, now I do 40 hours of coding and 40 hours of management and relationship building. Um, so that's, I mean, like I said, that's been kind of my experience throughout my history and my career. Uh, and that seems to be somewhat still consistent going forward, even though I'm getting roles that are, this is a 100% people management role. And to accomplish that, it's, I'll then later find out you need to be able to set a, a positive example for some team members. And sometimes that involves writing code or actually getting involved in the technology. And that's the biggest balance that people are always trying to seek at the end of the day is that, yes, everybody has a passion for coding. Um, everybody loves building stuff from scratch and see it working. But then when you're talking about all these extra responsibility coming in, it's how do you balance all of it? So I, I definitely love hearing it directly from you when you when you have lived through a lot of these experiences. Um, one of uh, the thing I actually want to figure out is uh, during that time at the consultant, was it still in the, well, I guess it wasn't in the finance industry anymore. And just because you're working with a consultancy, they actually get exposed to many more different industries. Like what other fortunate industry did you get to touch a little bit? Yeah, so at that time, um, I got a chance to get into uh, travel. Uh, so I, I was working, there was one major contract with uh, several travel agencies that allowed me to get involved with the different kind of back-end systems like your Sabre, uh, the United System, um, and so the various different airline booking systems that are out there. Uh, and very much so back in that day, you know, talking about screen scraping as a some sort of an effective enterprise method of, you know, pulling data in in order to connect systems, because that was back even pre-API web services days uh, so you had to kind of make do with the lowest common denominator at that point which was rendered HTML in a browser um, so but getting involved with that did have a few financial companies clients that I was involved with there uh, and then several other rental car type companies like your Avises and your Hertz got put out on several contracts to work there uh, as well and then uh, immediately following that getting involved in the direct marketing database marketing mail print and fulfillment services industry so yeah, it's uh, been crazy riding. You know, we're not even talking up to 9-11 at that point, you know, the 2001. So, um, yeah, this is all pre-2001. So it, it all happened rather rapidly in kind of the first five years of my career. That is impressive, just because you definitely hear the adage of, I guess when you get into tech, you could kind of have these skills that are transferable and you end up in a completely different industry and you're still able to do something out of it. And it sounds crazy that the the amount of people that I've heard that got into the chance to do is that they got into, you know, a first tech role. Next thing you know, they're in a completely different industry, but they're still able to do a job. It's like, it's crazy to think because if ever you go into a very specific program at university, for example, if you go into, um, I mean, if I was stuck with biology, you are in biology and you kind of have to, 
you know, stay with it most of the time, even though there's different application to it. But I feel like it wasn't as like expansive as tech. So that's one thing that I'll never um, take away from tech is that it, you know, just opens so much doors to everything. So fortunately, uh, I do recommend anybody if they are exploring any kind of option, like I'm definitely going to person to be like, just go for it. <laughs> just go into tech, just go into engineering and you'll be uh, really living the experience. Um, yeah, that's absolutely been consistent with my findings as well, technology. And, you know, I've never, at least I don't know of other careers where you can go from being a senior level uh, software engineer, you know, for a financial company and then immediately switch and convert. Now you're a similar senior software engineer for a childcare company, for instance, or into healthcare, or into um, pharmaceuticals, other various different, you know, specialized industries. And I think we're just solving problems at the end of the day. I mean, we are causing a lot of problems. We're also trying to solve them as we, <laughs> as we get into that. Um, right. Did you ever work in the uh, gaming industry? One thing I do want to point out, because those are not always like the most obvious. Uh, I'm from Montreal. Montreal has a you know, pretty big presence of the gaming industry. Did you ever get the chance to touch a little bit of that? Yeah, and actually that's, um, so going from that next job that I was at, uh, that print mailing agency company, uh, initially got some, uh, introduction to that when you say gaming industries, actually then it was casino games, uh, cause we had a lot of casino customers and part of the value add that we did was a technology component. Uh, and then I was responsible for at the time it was largely card games, uh, creating those online for our customers. Um, but then going from that particular career stop and moving on to, uh, other gaming systems where we were, uh, doing a scoring platform to be able to commonly score battlefield games versus call of duty games for instance um so yeah so uh lots of time in the gaming industry as well as a few kind of online uh browser-based games as well oh wow and then i can imagine because the i'm gonna say this for the gaming industry that is that the technology behind it is so vast um like visually you could have a game but it, it could be built in so many different ways just like websites to be fair but i feel like the gaming industry is way more wild wild west in terms of what is the standard over there. Uh, obviously, Unity is a big one nowadays, but that's going to be more, I guess, like proper uh, socket app-based. So uh, I'm glad you actually uh, got the chance to touch the game industry. I never did, uh, even though from Montreal, you'd expect that most engineers there are touching the game industry, but um, that isn't it. Um, but that's actually really good to know that the uh, the daily coding and the daily like just building stuff just never stopped at the end. Um, did that happen up till today? Actually, like, what, what's your most recent child, uh, like, your most recent role? Actually, was it still like very hands-on software engineering, or, or did it just end up becoming like very um, head of engineering, director of engineering, like a little bit more management focused when we talk about these different paths? Yeah, I think um, so. More recently, it has been kind of centering in on more management focus. You know, as my career has gotten more broad and, and I've been given kind of exposure to bigger challenges and bigger challenges. Uh, more recently, is working in the renewable energy space, um, and that being done is, is right after a couple of elections ago. Uh, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves and seeing which way the wind was blowing, kind of thinking, you know, I could become an, an American-based worker that has a lot of experience in renewable energy. Right as the United States seemed to be pulling out of the the Paris climate accords. So I was thinking that could become a pretty marketable position to be in. Um, and then as luck would have it within five weeks, uh, I was starting a job at a, a renewable energy company, uh, trying to manage batteries and solar cells, uh, using software to try to intelligently uh, switch the grid on and off in order to respond to events or in order to uh, create capacity. Wow. Yeah. And it's, that's always, well, it wows me definitely. I keep on saying it just because I feel like the commitment to start a project like that or even to start a company like that 
I mean, I, I, I didn't say you're starting it, but I'm saying to have a project going on for it. It involves like definitely millions and millions and millions of dollars probably, but also a lot of, I guess, legislation. Is that fair to say that like getting into the renew, renewable energy industry requires a lot more paperwork? Like what did that look like? What were the hurdles you were seeing? Gosh, I don't, yeah, I don't know that it requires more paperwork per se. It does seem to require a lot more kind of risky venture type uh, spending and building of, of technology because on the one hand, by and large, you're trying to drive a product uh, out there to satisfy a need in the market that the market is usually not quite aware it needs yet. Um, as we would find, uh, like the North American market, you know, they're operating largely on a grid that was built back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it hasn't really changed much since then. And at the time, they built it out for so much capacity back then that today, as they're starting to actually use some of that capacity, there's still not a huge kind of financial incentive for a particular power company to drive to modernize either their grid or the different assets on their network. Uh, so at that point, you know, it very much kind of harkens back to my Y2K experiences because, you know, in some cases we were dealing with end users and end customers uh, that were still running Windows 3.1 in a particular site, you know, for various different reasons. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it kind of seemingly all came full circle with that role, though I'm sure, you know, the next opportunity I tackle will also have a similar feature to it where, you know, it harkens back to one of my first couple of jobs as well. Yeah. I mean, when, once you're in, you don't really get out of it <laughs> for the better, for the better. From a legislation experience, um, it doesn't seem like, at least from my findings, the software engineering opportunities that exist out there in kind of the, the renewable energy world, it definitely could. I, I definitely know from experience that it could grow from legislative opportunities and become a paperwork opportunity, although the company I was with did not seem to want to pursue that angle quite as much, uh, which was real unusual for me because I had just got finished working at a, a company that was the only EDU registrar in the world. Um, but by virtue of that and by virtue of the federal government owning all EDU registrations effectively, uh, we were also very much lobbyist uh, kind of influenced or adjacent, we'll say. Uh, so a lot of legislative framework that went in for that so that whenever I got into this renewable company a few years later, I was quite shocked and surprised that they seemingly had no interest comparatively. That's actually a little bit surprising. Obviously, I have zero experience in that, but you know, having you paint this picture already, I think that's always a fascinating thing about. One thing that I actually do want to ask is uh, tech teams. So during that time when you were working at this renewable uh, energy company, sorry, and you were definitely doing a little bit more management at the end, how did the, I guess, tech team work? Was there, I think there's going to be some hardware involved in this, some bit software into, uh, involved in this. Like, what, what did that look like? How many engines were there? How did projects separate that? Because I feel like at that time you had a lot of responsibility in terms of you know, overlooking a lot of these. Yeah, and officially I was a director, quote unquote, the director title at that role. And I think that really kind of plays into more of the classical kind of director responsibilities where, you know, from my experience, you could be a dev manager um, and then you could still be the director of software engineering. But at that point, you're talking about not only the, the product software engineers, but the DevOps software engineers, the database professionals. Uh, you're potentially talking about the agile practices, SDLC uh, professionals as well, like your scrum masters. Um, you know, in that role, I didn't actually have any responsibility for the product team. Um, however, everything else technology-wise and by virtue of the CTO kind of finding something else to do after I uh, arrived, um, I ended up becoming kind of the, the highest-ranked engineering professional at the organization there for quite some time. Yeah, and I'm actually so glad that you started bringing up all these like titles, but there's, there are differences into it. I mean, Okay, let's jump into that. This is this is the bit where I want to jump into in terms of like when you get to that point. Um, I mean, obviously you have so many 
experience through the decades of being in tech and at the end, and you do get uh, different roles and different, you know, tasks and responsibilities that you got over the years. The roles don't always, aren't the cleanest cut in terms of every single um, director of engineering at every company has a different set of tasks and different, different set of, you know, responsibilities. Same thing as if uh, you take an engineer, engineer manager, sorry, at different companies, they have, you know, somewhat different roles at the end. And which is why it's always fascinating. Like a senior and software engineer is kind of like engineering manager. Let's break it down a bit in terms of how we distinguish all of it. So the ones that I guess we've named so far, we have the director of engineering, we have the CTO, we have like head of engineering, VP of engineering. From your point of view, like what are the d- distinctions between all of them? Um, yeah, so goodness, uh, kind of starting from the bottom there at the manager, kind of dev manager level, um, you know, from my experience working long in my career, those managers are usually uh, almost 100% involved with the end team members and people that are working underneath them. Um, or as you know, as I will usually liken it, wherever I'm working, they're, they're working with you, they don't work for you. Um, so in that sense, uh, as a manager, you're, you're very closely connected with the individual team members that are, you know, officially underneath you in the org chart. Um, then you have responsibilities to be able to set up between the group that you're responsible for and then other groups within the organizations. But at that point, it's usually very much kind of from your level down. Whereas I found once you start getting beyond that into that director level, that's when you start kind of broadening to go, not only are you responsible for what's under you, but you're also responsible for what's to the left and to the right. And in a lot of cases, what's above you as well. Uh, and that, as I see, usually kind of just increases going from that director level position to that VP position to that CTO executive position. Um, so that's, like I said, been my experience. And by the time you reach that CTO executive position, you're, you're talking about not only the public and kind of the world, the industry that you're talking talking in, um, but usually you're then working with people that are directly under you, uh, which oftentimes doesn't include, you know, individual, individual contributors uh, or individual team members. Yeah, I think this is a very subjective question at the end is um, what are the pros and cons of each and which one do you prefer? I don't know if that makes any sense in terms of like they all have a different, you know, when you're talking about these directional stuff, like, is there one of those levels that you prefer, like your comfort zone at the end, just because you found that there's a perfect balance between being exposed to soft skills, soft skills, but also being very, very close to the stack? Yeah, I mean, I think um, kind of where I usually find myself the happiest is kind of in that director level where you have access and responsibilities in both directions, kind of both up as well as down. Uh, whereas in management, it's usually very much, you know, you're responsible for who's immediately reporting to you, but then there's not always that same level of responsibility above you. Like you're only responsible to really inform your manager and your other peers, not necessarily your boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss. Um, although there have been several stops in my career as well, you know, where I'm at that VP level, um, that it is just as engaging and exciting for me as, as being a director or even an IC individual contributor. Um, throughout my career. So yeah, I think I, I just find directors a lot easier from that level to be able to reach out and to affect things at all levels. Um, whereas if you're like a CTO and at the end of the day, you're working very closely with a few individual contributors, that becomes more of a noteworthy novelty than necessarily your your, your regular job. I mean, that is such a good way of putting it into perspective because I, whenever I talk about uh, this kind of, you know, this topic with other engineers and other managers and other, you know, directors, that kind of stuff, they... I feel like it is a shared sentiment. It's a shared sentiment that the closer you are to the stack, then, you know, uh, the more busy, obviously, you are coding and everything. And the more you get away from it, you do, depending on the personality, obviously, like, you do miss it. 
if that makes any sense. Um, I think over the years, as you evolve, you kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like. And some people will die with the code. So that that's something that they love to death. And I definitely admire people who are able to, you know, express that at the end of the day. As I say, that's actually something recently in some of the interviewing that I've been doing um, where you'll get that question of, well, well, how much do you want to stay hands on and in the code versus how much do you want to, you know, just be out above it trying to plan strategically and trying to plan for the people. Um, and really, I don't have a, an answer one way or another necessarily because I find the benefits and the excitement in both sides. Um, and that's why usually when I'm working, you know, trying to get a job, it's really whatever the company is looking for and needs to succeed. Uh, specifically, you know, what does the team need to succeed that's there already? Um, or what does the team that we're going to build need to succeed? And that's the role that I'm usually looking to play, whether that's officially like at a manager level, an individual contributor level, or even all the way out to VP, CTO level, um, where you're doing a lot more of the strategic planning. Yeah, of course. And one of the things that is actually like really relatable, especially when you mentioned that, is that you started off as a software engineer, just like many of us. Many of us just started off as a software engineer, and that's kind of where this branching happens after, where you you know kind of decide a path. And a lot of the I guess software engineering, sorry, our software engineering ladder that are present in different organizations, company kind of reflects that. They really do start at a certain level where everybody comes out as a software engineer because that's where the passion started off as, and then you kind of decide the IC versus uh, EM path at the end of the day, which is engineering manager, individual contributor. Um, and this question never stops. I feel like no matter how far deep into your career, the, the questioning on where you sit on all this uh, software engineering ladder uh, always is present. Um, one of the things that I could actually throw into the whole you know, conversation is technical founders. Um, those, I mean, obviously they're super important and even more nowadays when we talk about people who are going on this adventure of having their own startup, having their own company, most of the time you'll have somebody that wants to be you know, building everything on their own and then build off from there. When we try to throw these people, these technical founders, into this whole like title discussion, where does that sit in? Are they always end up becoming a CTO? Do they like where? Where does that happen? Because I feel like that's the most common thing you would think about. Yeah, um, you know, I think that kind of naturally you would think that's where some some individuals would go. Uh, but in my experience, that's not necessarily been the case. You know, as I've seen it play out in the real world, um, you know, I've seen technical founders go on to be the president CEO of the organization, as well as I've seen them kind of go off to the side and say, OK, I'm just the chief architect. I'm going to be the person that says, you know, strategically where we're headed because um, they don't kind of have that similar interest in the business side of creating, you know, a sustainable enterprise quality organization. Um, so, yeah, I've seen the, the whole spectrum from the technical founders of, you know, some people that will just stay as a software engineer or they'll go out to become a principal uh, engineer. Is, you know, it's kind of likens my experience or colors my experience of principal engineers being the people that, you know, don't seem to want to be as team focused um, as the rest of the team. At least that's been my history is that when they get to that principal level, then, you know, they're probably fairly well set in the way they work and, you know, have a, a somewhat rigid process of how they work. Um, and like I said, I've seen technical founders kind of stop at that area there and not continue on uh, towards that CTO or CIO position or even as that president CEO. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think I don't know when I said this, but I feel like I mentioned at some point where being a founder isn't exactly a job title, even though it is at the end of the day. Um, being a technical founder, it's, it's, it's a quality. It's definitely a quality. And at the end of the day, you have to specify a little bit more in terms of what aspect you take from it. Like being a president uh, after being a uh, founder at the end, it definitely makes sense. I do see the direct impact on that, as well as being, you know, if you become a CEO after being a technical founder, like those are a very common path. I think Zuckerberg probably took that path at the end of the day. 
And um, I, I do understand that being a tech co-founder, there's so much pressure into it. And then just exploring, discovering what you end up becoming is always a great adventure. So um, one of the things that uh, I've always had a question about that there's never a really good answer is when you're talking about being in these, I guess, responsibility of building an engineering team, how does how does it work? I think it's a very broad question, but what I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of factor in terms of like, what are your resources? How, man, how many teams can you actually build? How many engineering teams? I've been to organizations that only have a single engineering team. I've been to organizations that have like multiple across. So what are the factors when you are in that kind of, you know, director slash even engineering manager role of what to hire and how much can you hire? Yeah, I mean, um, so in my experience, it's really driven by what the company, the underlying company is trying to become. Uh, you know, as such, if they're trying to become a SaaS platform, um, that is just as well known for, you know, the innovations that their platform is pushing as much as they are known for, you know, the customer's ability to use your platform, then that usually, you know, points to some blend of, you know, having to invest in an engineering team or process that's going to continue to push those innovation boundaries as well as investing in a support team and a customer care team that's going to also take care of that side of, of the overall business. Um, so it's really largely, in my experience, driven by what the underlying company values and what it's trying to become. You know, as such, they could become just a technology company or technology firm that licenses their software out so that then another company that has, you know, a more mature customer care center would actually then use your product and work with their customers with it. Um, so yeah, in my experience, you know, recently building upwards of a 50 person engineering team, um, that largely was all software engineers, uh, specifically the, the on, the on team in-house engineers that we hired. Cause we also had contract team members as well as contract companies that we would engage with, uh, in order to give us kind of that burstable capacity. Oh yeah. That's actually always a great topic in terms of like, do we hire our own in-house engineers or do we also, or do we use a, whether an outsourced engineering firm that actually builds your um your product at the end of the day i feel like those have been popping up whether whichever industry you're in those are always a question that you have to consider at the end of the day and just for i guess like a i guess like an interesting way of looking at this is when you look at organizations you could most of the time attribute a percentage of how much of it is engineering um you don't have to i guess like give me give me exact numbers but i guess like from my experiences when i look at the very very fun and great place that i get to work at you have different levels some some companies will have like 20% engineering and other places will have like oh yeah we're like 80% engineering of like the whole staff um where like what do you think of the landscape today actually like for all the stuff that you've seen do, would you consider it's mostly you know 50-50 in terms of engineering or do you feel like there was one side that is more engineering than not yeah, I think uh, looking back on my career, um, definitely the, the places where the engineering team has made up the bigger percentage of the overall workforce uh, have been the times when, you know, I would consider various jobs I've had throughout my career as being more or less recession proof than others. Um, and, you know, as such, whenever you're part of an engineering team, that's just a cost drain on the organization or a necessity of doing business, you know, as such, you know, it's largely more DevOps related and basically facilitating the business. That's when I found that, you know, once layoffs potentially start to approach, then that team's the one that's going to be looked at as, you know, how do we start trimming the fat from this team before we, you know, really hit our competitive advantage, which is the people that work with our customers. Um, and that's, you know, from my experience, been more of that 20 to 80% rule where the engineering team makes up only like 20% of the team. Um, those are the ones that throughout my career I've seen have been more likely to be hit with that layoff first than the other side of the organization. 
So I definitely prefer the larger engineering footprint overall uh, as, as percentage of the workforce, just knowing that then that allows not only the team that you're building, but the uh, ideally the engaging professionals that you're bringing in uh, much more able to affect and drive that team culture that will ultimately, from my perspective, be the thing that the organization or the companies gets well known for, whether that's via glass door reviews or whether that's via you know someone using a, a message board system to talk about what is or isn't happening at their workplace. Yeah, and I'm actually so glad to hear this from from a different perspective because I don't usually hear stuff about <laughs> about the about stuff like this actually. Um, and yeah, I do kind of agree that it obviously depends on the I guess the the product of the company definitely matters. Uh, if you have like companies that really rely on, for example, uh, the data collection, whatever it is, like I feel like that engineering footprint is going to be much bigger just because that definitely needs to succeed and definitely needs to be robust and all that, which is why the investment on that will might take a little bit more. Uh, engineering uh, footprint within the company. So yeah, at the end of the day, the product at the end really, really matters. If you're a marketing company, then of course, there's going to be a little bit less engineering footprint into that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's really good to even have somebody like you having this exposure to so many different industry and so many different companies that you, you're able to give a little bit of indication to other people who might be facing this problem to solve at the end of the day. Um, actually love that you know since we're talking about so many engineering side like people can imagine i guess very very technical and it's just like computers and computers and computers at the end of the day but one thing we do have to remember is that like engineers are humans at the end of the day <laughs> which is crazy to say and one thing that i do like to think about is uh one of the previous talk i actually was talking to friends about is the different personalities of engineers or even the different personalities of every working within an engineering organization sorry so you have product managers designers uh, scrum masters and all that kind of stuff what are we talking about in terms of synergies? How does that work? Because I do know not every engineer is the same. Not every engineer is a stereotypical one. What is your point of view on all of this? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I see that not not only are, you know, there are humans involved in doing the software engineering, um, but really the humans are at their best whenever they individually or personally feel challenged. And knowing that people are so vastly different, that's not always the same thing for each individual team member, each IC on, on a team. Um, you know, and you mentioned about product owners and scrum masters and various different roles that people could play uh, within the overall SDLC, the software development lifecycle. Um, and it's absolutely necessary that, that from my both my experience in the industry as well as my own personal beliefs and values um, that you absolutely try to strive to build that diverse team um, because even though it might not be the easiest thing to do on the front end uh, it's the thing that will absolutely pay dividends not only for yourself and your your other team members uh, but also for the organization and you know the broader community world at large um, especially if you have a significant impact or reach with your product um, and it's you know I know from my experience it's very easy to hire those fast similes of ourselves, you know, just looking in a mirror and saying, okay, I'm going to hire the exact same person I see because, you know, I know our personalities will get along. I know, you know, we'll laugh at the same jokes. We'll cry at the same parts of the movie. Uh, but that, in my experience, isn't what's going to ultimately drive towards the best product uh, and the best, strongest underlying technology, uh, which is ultimately what the, the company is kind of assembling us all to accomplish. Um, so that's, you know, from my view, it's absolutely ensuring that you build that diverse team, you know, put the legwork in to not only pull that diverse team together, but then also individually form those relationships that you know that this person, you know, requires a certain level to feel challenged and to feel as though they're 100% fulfilled in the work they're doing. You know, they need to be taken to this level or challenged in this way. You know, the very next person might require a completely different set of stimulus in order to actually accomplish that in order to bring the best them to the work that they're doing. Um, and, you know, that's 
the same goes for whether we're talking about a scrum master, a database architect, or kind of a more lower level HTML markup designer. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's always going to be those differences in the diversity that you can accumulate to actually uh, give you that competitive advantage in the marketplace of, you know, how is your company doing it better or differently than the next company? And, you know, from my experience, it's always been the, the diverse team we're able to bring together and then that diverse set of backgrounds that we're able to then ultimately express in whatever work it is we're doing. Even you from managing all of that is something that everybody could learn from is that from the perspective of somebody else on the other side. So when, for example, when I'm breathing as part of a team of an engineering and uh, when you join a team, for example, you don't really decide who is already there. Um, you just kind of end up joining and you kind of just try to figure out like, how do I fit in this? Cause that's if you look at it from that perspective is how do I fit in, you know, the relationship, the synergy, I keep on saying it because I mean, People have described that. I'm very outgoing and all that kind of stuff, but not everybody is like that, right? You cannot expect everybody to be like, as you were saying, like buddy, buddy, and we're going to, you know, have seven pints after work kind of thing. And I think these decisions, as you were saying, like somebody has made a decision to make this kind of, this kind of group work together. And I'm actually really fascinated to even just hear it that, uh, like what are, what are some of the factors, I guess, like personality wise for engineers out there? Cause I do know a lot of engineers are coming into whether uh, being being interviewed or something like that like what's something that they could always improve on or what's something that uh the i guess hiring managers have an eye for when they talk about that yeah i mean um whenever i'm whenever i'm in that role of hiring manager you know i'm always looking towards people that seem to express a, a curiosity to engage with others you know whether that's others in a new concept that they're not familiar with or a new technology that they might not be familiar with or even if it's just a you know a culture that they're not familiar with and you know just individual people you know i'm looking for people that express that desire to to want to reach out and to learn and, and not necessarily from kind of that extroverted you know very outgoing and gregarious way you know because i i I'm a person who fully appreciates um, being one myself that you can tend to be very outgoing and, and gregarious, but then also prefer to be an introvert. You know, that's where you see your fulfillment and that's where you actually, you know, kind of recharge those batteries. So, you know, it's not always just reading something at face value, seeing how they present themselves. But, you know, I always find it's it's much more important to dig deeper and find out, you know, is there a value underlying that belief that you have or that, that way that you practice your particular work? Um, um, and really trying to understand what those values are so that then not only the person that we're interviewing, but then also myself, we can share values. So that way, ideally, then we both start to learn where each other is coming from uh, and ultimately then how we can both blend together to create beautiful digital jazz music. Yeah. Okay, fine. Nobody has ever said digital, beautiful jazz music, but I absolutely love it. And it's 100% how I can feel my day-to-day -day is at the end of the day. This is, I guess, a completely random topic. And as I love these random subjective part of it, because, you know, sometimes in engineering, you could be a little bit more subjective on stuff. Previously, on one of the episodes I did about uh, the different kinds of engineers. So, you know, there's front-end, back-end, as you're saying, database architects, DevOps, uh, security engineers, all that kind of stuff. One of my bias is um, somebody told me that all the front-end engineers tend to be more outgoing than all the back-end engineers. Um, this is obviously an opinion at the end of the day. What do you make of it? Do you have a stance on that? Do you have something that you've seen over the past couple of years that would make you say otherwise? Yeah, you know, I think there's, there's a reason why stereotypes, you know, tend to be used is because they tend to be more often than not accurate. Um, and I would say that's probably true, um, that, that front-end or at least design team members that, you know, are not only always out there presenting their work and trying to effectively sell the work they did. Look at this button I made or look at this form that I created. Um, 
those people are, in my experience, going to tend to be the ones that appreciate and want to generally stay more extroverted. Um, however, you know, on the kind of other side of that, you know, because from my perspective, there's a healthy way to be an extrovert and, of course, unhealthy ways to be an extrovert, you know, and that that's usually where I'll find people, you know, just shooting out that extroversion and, you know, all the communication and talk to kind of distract you so that they don't feel like, you know, people are getting too close, you know, so they, they don't want to necessarily share those values or those feelings deep down. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a positive and a negative to any of those, but, uh, more generally speaking, I, I do tend to find front end engineers generally tend to be more out there and extroverted. Um, but that's not, you know, to say that's a hundred percent always the case. At the end of the day, we're all in, all in it, sorry for the discussion anyways. And that's basically one of the goals I do this. Um, just so that you get to your opinions about <laughs> everything and it doesn't matter whether you're front end back end engineer, like I feel like the world of engineering like as i probably mentioned before is that everybody has their own background story everybody has their own way that they got into it and everybody has their own reason why they're still in it and why they keep on doing into it so um, i'm really glad that we even got the chance to talk about this this side of the diversity of the engineering team because you really got to see them as humans at the end of the day as as technical as we get so yeah because you know 20 years can go by the technology will all be washed out by then but those people will still be those people you know hopefully we've all survived 20 more years but um, yeah, that's from my perspective, that's going to be the commonality between now and the 20 years from now is the people that are involved. They're still going to be people. One thing I can mention actually is nowadays you would hear a lot of companies that have these like hyper growth or like these companies that are actually like, you know, building much quicker than I guess the management side to it. So like, what's your take on that in terms of like, like, you know, imagine you have a company that barely had like a couple of engineers. The next thing you know, it grows to like a couple hundreds of engineers, like, what do you make of that when, when it happens? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, so in, in that particular case of a few engineers and then it growing kind of overnight, um, you know, that that's the sort of uh, organization that I would really be focused on and looking as, you know, how do we support our team members, not only in the work that they're doing, um, but how do we support them in their daily kind of efforts that we're expecting them to give for the organization, you know, and by doing that, that, you know, usually is in the form of scrum masters and product owners, basically who are those support people that are going to uh, facilitate that individual software engineer to produce that story or that feature that they've been given a, a list of requirements for. And yeah, that's actually a really good take on it, just because everybody has different needs at the end of the day. Um, one thing that I, I am interested, actually, is you can't throw everybody in the same bucket, I guess. As in, like, you can't expect everybody to just, like, work well with each, with each other. So basically, when, when we're talking about this, like, growth of engineering team, you can't have an engineering team of, like, 50 people in it, because that doesn't make any sense at the end of the day. I don't think I've ever worked on an engineering team of 50 people. Um, I guess what, what's the direction that people could take? What I'm personally more experienced with is I think like I'll usually be in groups of maybe like four, five, six, seven, eight engineers at most. Um, from your experience, is that what you've seen before or... Yeah, usually uh, five, six software engineers on a team is, is usually kind of that sweet spot that I've seen, uh, you know, allowing kind of optimal opportunities for pairing as well as, you know, collaboration within the team. Uh, and those being specific software engineers, usually there's also, you know, QA test automation engineers involved with there as well as scrum masters and product owners to kind of round out overall the quote unquote team, you know, which usually brings your count to eight to 10 people. Um, but, you know, with at least half of that being software engineers, um, you know, and usually I've seen throughout my career, um, 
challenges that I've arrived at being, you know, where the organization has just thought, well, we went out there and we bought all the, the biggest, best names we could find in this technology area. And we just put them in the same room. And of course, they'll all work great together because, you know, they're the, the world recognized leader in this area. They run a conference or they've published the book. They've literally written the book on the topic. Um, and I've never seen that work exceptionally well, um, with the exception of in the cases where the team has effectively had to take it upon themselves to provide those support components or to provide those leadership aspects that they're otherwise not receiving from the organization. Um, so historically, when I've had those challenges, um, it's usually been a lot of really digging in and getting to know the individual kind of people leaders within each of the teams that I'm working with. Um, and then from there, getting a chance to meet and learn about all the additional software engineering team members, because without, you know, that full understanding, that trust being established between the people that are driving the project and the people that are actually delivering the project, um, if you don't have that level of trust, then you're usually not going to have that well-oiled machine working, you know, 100% effectively where the requirements come in, the software comes out, and all we have is happy, smiling customers. People make it sound it's so it's so seamless when that happens, when there is a good infrastructure, when there's a good structure to the engineering organization. That's when, you know, every, everything's owned properly. But when it isn't like that, when, you know, the context of, oh, yeah, let's just hire everybody and see what happens. Like that usually, as you were saying, might not go as pretty. And I feel like that's really a lot of your responsibilities. Even if, if I think about everything that we've spoken so far is that you really come in and you really are able to recognize how how pieces need to fit together it sounds like a big game of tetris at the end yeah and that's actually it's uh what i usually like to call my scheduling process schedule tetris um but uh yeah i mean that's from my perspective from a director management level it's really that person's responsibility to not to really look for the non-obvious solutions to a particular problem or a particular challenge because um, you know things don't become a problem until they can't be solved so they're always a challenge until they can't be solved um, so, you know, usually as we're, we're working on those challenges of making the team come together and become kind of that high performing team, you know, with the various stages of team, uh, formation and performance, um, the only way to get to that point is either to, as the director, as that leader to come in and, and start really supporting the team and the organization so that they can do their best work. Um, or as I mentioned, in the lack of that, you then see a lot of kind of those stronger leadership elements on the team growing up and becoming those team leaders and team leads, even though they may not officially have that title, but just because that personality is so strong or their care for their, their coworkers is so much or so great uh, that they absolutely are going to go above and beyond what's ultimately required of them in order to make those connections so that they can you know, ultimately deliver on their work. I feel like the more we talk about this, the more it kind of sounds like a sports team. I don't know what it is, but when, like, you know, when you have a group of people, like everyone has their own role, like you know, the defenders on a you know European football team, they have their own roles and they have to make sure that this kind of works at the end. There wouldn't be a surprise where you would have like, I guess, ego? Would that be the right word to say that everybody has a different personality? Everybody has, you know, the way of tackling stuff. And, you know, there are going to be egos coming into this whole scene. The tech scene will, is written by it. I'll say it like no matter where you go, it's going to be that. Um, is that something that you've seen or, is, or like even in general, is that something that uh, what's the impact of having, I guess, ego in the industry? And also, is there any you know, way to tackle it? 
I think, uh, isn't it Freud who said that, you know, ego is, is something that everyone has. So I think it's, it's more of a human condition. And, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, people have egos. I don't think it's in any means necessarily a negative thing. Um, you know, and really I see it as the directors and the leaders in the organization's responsibility to ensure that all those egos are facilitated in a way that allows them to accomplish great things. And then by virtue of that, they're accomplishing great things for the company and everyone's interests are aligned, uh, and everyone's doing great together. So, you know, that's really, from my perspective, the, the vantage that I have, that's the opportunity that you have as a leader is to come in and not only be that force multiplier, but to allow overall work to happen with such fluidity uh, that we're ultimately able to achieve more and accomplish more, you know, more than the sum of our parts, you know, and that what that's saying. So, um, yeah, that's like I said, I think that's absolutely the director, the everyone kind of above manager's responsibility 100% to ensure that that team is positioned, as they like to say in the industry, positioned well for success. Um, and that's the way to do it is to make sure that you've put the time, put the work in to, to ensure the team's supported and to ensure that they can do the best work possible. And it's never an easy problem to solve. I feel like if there was one single answer that's going to solve everybody's problem, I think we're all going to be billionaires by then. But unfortunately, when we talk about these, obviously, growing organizations, it's going to be a little bit tough at the end of the day. And I think, um, I mean, now, now that we are on, on a similar vein of topic, from the perspective of somebody working on an engineering team, like there's always this idea of like, whether, whether it's qualified as churn or like turnover of like, oh, why am I not liking this? Or why is it becoming like this? This is kind of like on the vein of like egos. Like if you're working somebody with a bigger, bigger ego, I guess, and you don't really like that, you're not exactly the most comfortable. So I guess from that point of view, how do you handle this most of the time? Like, what do you say to yourself? Or even from the other point of view is that from a somebody who's in management and seeing it, like, what are the different tips, I guess, or tricks that you could take to, to tackle it? Um, so, I mean, one of the things is to, to really listen to the individual team members, because um, usually team members will tell you those things that they do or don't respond well to, um, or that they ultimately do or don't respond to just at all. Um, and whether that's, you know, big egos or potentially abrasive personalities, um, usually the team member will tell you that that's something that effectively triggers them. Um, and that's what I find, you know, you really want to listen to those team members because they'll usually tell you, you know, and that's how usually a company will arrive at, well, how come we didn't see this coming? And they'll say, well, we did. They told us we just all reassured one another that that wasn't the case or it wasn't quite what they said. And, you know, we tried to make it okay by comforting one another by saying that wasn't the case. But, you know, effectively, if you listen to those team members, they will usually tell you the pathway forward. It's just you have to really be present and, and actually be listening. And oftentimes that isn't what uh, leaders at organizations are necessarily trying to do. Yeah. And I think it definitely all leads back to what we were saying earlier, where communication is key and whether, whether, you know, whichever direction, right. When we talk about these different directions, like communication is key. And I think that that benefits somebody, whether in the engineering industry or not way more down the line when you do start communicating and being more transparent in terms of like your concerns, your thoughts, all of that. I don't think anybody has ever gotten uh, burned in the, you know, in the industry for doing too much of that. So I'll definitely encourage communication at the end of the day. Um, one thing that people do bring up actually quite often is, uh, are you big fans of one-on-ones? People describe that sink or coffees or whatever. Like, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I, uh, so I, I live and die by the one-on-one. That's, um, yeah, I, I am a huge fan of the one-on-ones. I think that's really where you get the opportunity to really break down different barriers and walls that people may have, you know, as they're trying to, I'm just trying to keep work things with work things and, you know, home and family things over here. Um, so the way to break those down, I usually find is, is to be vulnerable to those team members to share a story where you didn't necessarily accomplish great things or wonderful things, you know, show a little humility, you know, show your imperfections. And usually doing that, you'll get a reciprocated response from team members, um, where they will start to break down their walls and share those things that, you know, maybe they're not as proud of or is excited to share with individuals, especially not, you know, their boss or someone uh, that might be in a position of authority. Um, and I think, you know, in my career, that's usually one of the things consistently year over year, I'm usually recorded quite highly on. And, you know, even though I've done a lot of work in a lot of different industries, uh, before all that, I sold cars uh, as a teenager. So um, I like to think that plus my telemarketing days, you know, those ways that I tend to be very outgoing, um, you know, I tend to form relationships well. And, um, you know, as I said, in my performance reviews going back years now, that's usually the thing I get the highest marks for is the ability in a one-on-one session to, to really accomplish great things for the company, even though we may go in there talking about completely non-business related things at all. I love that you mentioned the bit about talking about your flaws and everything. I mean, it's hard for me because I don't have any, but I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that's definitely great advice. Uh, Those one-on-ones, like I do know that there's different camps behind it, but like, Sometimes you'll be on a perspective like, oh, it's useless or whatever. Or the other camp where it's like when there's effective active, uh, action points coming out of it, it does help people improve as a person. But also if you talk about just career-wise, like those are kind of stuff that people do consider a lot. And that just, you know, helps with the whole landscape. So, Yeah, and actually that's uh, one thing I do at all the roles I'm usually at is try to very clearly have, you know, professional development time as well as personal development time. And even though some of the people I'll tend to work for will say, well, why is that different? Why can't we just have professional development time? And you know, trying to differentiate what that time is for and ensure that our ICs or our individual team members know when we say personal development time, we want to do what makes you happy. You know, that doesn't have to be code related. Doesn't have to be technology related. You know, if, if that means just getting laundry done and getting some housework done so that you can, you know, feel better about the situation heading into the weekend do that. You know, that's what we want to focus on. So, um, and that's something I usually try to focus on at all the roles I've had is try to clearly say, okay, this is professional development time. This is personal development time and make sure the team members know, you know, there isn't a social pressure associated with that where, you know, we're really just testing you to see if you're going to, you know, decide to personally grow yourself in a way that benefits the company. Yeah. Coming off that vein of when we're talking about like communication is key, especially all the good examples that we've given so far is, a lot of times when somebody joined a team, like how, okay, I'm going to talk for myself because I'm obviously selfish over here. Um, I know I'm different than other people. I know my considerations are different. I know that my lifestyle is very different than other engineers out there or even other very close team members like product designs and then product managers and everybody else. I guess from your point of view is how do you manage that? How do you, I guess like a lot of times when we talk about like whether it's like the mental health of people or like the different considerations, somebody who has a kid who doesn't have a kid, like, when you throw all of that as factors into a working engineering organization, what what do you make of it and how do you, you know, make the best out of it, actually? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so my experience with that, you know, and, and kind of what intent we infer out of one another as we're approaching a challenge or a problem, um, you know, not only does that really kind of 
well focused in the history of building out these relationships with individuals on the team, um, but also in just the intent that we assume from others as we're approaching a challenge or a problem. You know, unless you've done that work to really build that trust with your individual team members, then you're usually not going to approach a problem thinking, okay, we're all coming at this in good faith. You know, we're trying to attack and solve this problem without attacking one another. Because um, I know it's frequently uh, an issue that you may have interpersonal relationships uh, working within a project um, where you may get, you know, one team member that, you know, does not share the same uh, positive intent of the other team members. So one person might think this other person is out to get them or is, is really trying to, you know, really cause problems for them professionally in the work that they're accomplishing. Um, and that's why Usually I'm doing the legwork of creating working agreements with teams, uh, establishing the, the groundwork of how we intend to work with one another. And, it, you know, it might sound campy, uh, but making sure the entire team is all verbally saying, you know, that, yeah, we we expect, you know, nothing but the best out of one another. And we assume that, you know, if this person comes off in any kind of a negative or a terse way, we just assume they must be having a bad day and don't take things personally. Um, and as I said, you know, it usually does come across 100% campy when you have a, a team full of professionals all saying that on a Zoom call, um, but it's absolutely vital, you know, down, you know, weeks, months later, whenever we're having a significant problem at, you know, at some odd hour of the night, you know, for two team members to be able to assume that, okay, this person's just trying to make sure we get the problem solved and, you know, they have the same set of urgencies that I do, you know, they're not trying to make this more challenging for me or for someone else. Um, as long as you can, you know, basically expect the best out of one another, then that usually allows everyone to collectively deliver their best. Yeah, it's so human. I think everything that you just talk about is it really embraces the fact that we are human at the end of the day. And then if on paper it comes down to, oh, less turnover or all that kind of fun stuff, that's on paper. But at the end of the day, like there is the consideration that everybody has their own different concerns, their own different priorities. And a lot of what you can contribute as a weather director and engineer or anybody who actually has an oversight onto this is what can we do to make this better for everybody? And I feel like those kind of go, you know, under the radar and never really gets to directly point it out. But you do have a, I guess, framework to tackle this. One thing that I always geek out about is how do you keep track of all of it? Do you, is, is there like software that you use to keep track of? If you're trying to implement something that will benefit the whole engineer organization at the end of the day, do you have any tools, software that you use to, um, you know, communicate and get this message across? Oh, gosh, it, it really depends on the, the organization and the team um, as far as what tools, not only that I have at my disposal, but what tools I might have in order to reach them and, and make a, kind of a lasting impact, you know, whether that's, you know, via some sort of a wiki tool that's being used or some sort of other communication tool. Um, I don't myself have kind of a personal uh, collection. I just through my own, you know, kind of individual interests, I pursue the various different topics that uh, really interest me and that, that are really applicable to the work that I do. And um, that ultimately then usually has a, a positive net effect on the work that I am doing on a daily basis, you know, with the individuals I'm working with. And, um, you know, I kind of look towards LinkedIn recommendations as being kind of a good measurement of that for me as to how well I'm doing, which is, you know, how how many team members of a recent work that I've done are basically willing to go to that level of leaving a recommendation because, you know, that's not something that they necessarily have to do. Um, but it is something that I usually read as, you know, something in the way that we work together made them feel like, you know, this is worthwhile for me to leave. That is the, I guess, like the the example of being appreciated at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people <laughs> love having these moments where, oh, I didn't realize that I had such an impact on other people. And then they just leave us, you know, recommendations or just good words at the end of the day. 
And this is a buildup of all the other points that you've mentioned previously in terms of being an environment that you're exposed to where you have these different personalities that work together. So that's obviously something that's going to be really, really important. And then when you throw in all the being considerate in terms of people's mental health, physical health, uh, all the different priorities. And then when you throw in all these different techniques that you mentioned as well, like doing one-on-ones, uh, making sure that they have the resources. If they want career progression, they, they know what they're talking about. That's not a little bit of work. That's going to be a lot of work. And I'm guessing from your point of view of having lived through all this as whether, you know, on the management role, I think it's just invaluable at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I don't usually look at it as work. It's uh, kind of my passion to to meet people and learn their stories and uh, really learn and understand the kind of the world that they're living in. Because, you know, obviously it's the same planet, but um, they all have a very different reality than my own. And, um, you know, I understand that, appreciate that. And, you know, once again, going back to diversity, it's absolutely the thing that I value and ultimately the thing that I believe any company is uh, able to get a lot out of. Speaking of people who are kind of, I guess, like trying to figure out, I guess this is the point where it's like, what is your advice for people? Because I feel like a lot of what we talk more is um, getting into management and getting into this, like, how do I benefit engineering organizations? I guess, what would be your advice for people that are, whether debating going into that path or are, you know, fresh into that path and want to have a good impact on, you know, themselves, but everything that they work with? Yeah, I mean, uh, so my advice on kind of people that are getting newly into the engineering management path or even just management in general um, is to to really focus on relationships and your own vulnerabilities. Because um, that's, from my experience, what I've found is uh, the more that you're willing to show your vulnerabilities to the people that you work with, then in my experience, the more that that'll end up being reciprocated, allowing you to actually grow a deeper relationship with that person. Uh, so that later down the road, whenever, you know, we're working, really struggling through a particular challenge or problem, you can then count on that person that you're working with to, to put in the exact you know, same type of commitment and effort that you're putting in, you know, you won't have to worry about, you know, are they going to be able to do the part they committed to doing? Um, so that's really just my advice to anyone starting either in management or even their engineering career is just really focus on the relationships with your peers, even if they aren't in the engineering team at the company, because um, those relationships are going to be the things that not only help you succeed where you're at, but also going forward, um, they're really going to open the door for you for all sorts of amazing opportunities. Yeah, and you'd love to hear it. And obviously, I can't forget about all the people that are code lovers and obviously love jumping into the, I guess, mostly IC path. What advice directly do you have for people that just, you know, breathe and will die by code? Um, so my advice to, to those individuals, both uh, from some individual contributors I've worked with recently, as well as just general individual contributors out there, um, is just not be afraid of, of really getting involved uh, and getting involved, whether we're talking about new technologies, new patterns, um, or even user groups to debate, you know, just a completely you know, asinine point that you think isn't all that significant or important. So I don't know why these guys just keep going on and on about it, but um, just getting involved in those uh, and not being afraid to really put yourself out there and, and, you know, not be afraid to fail. Because if you're starting out with new technologies, chances are you're going to fail, whether that's, you know, printing out that hello world or um, coming up all the way to doing transactions on the millions of volumes level that, you know, you're ultimately then responsible for a six hour outage on a Saturday. Um, you know, just don't be afraid to be involved because that's at the end of the day, it, mistakes are what grows us more so than successes. And I'm sure that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Amazing. Thank you so <laughs> much for all these great advices. Where can people follow you actually? Do you have any, you know, social media, LinkedIn kind of thing you want to share? 
Um, yeah, so it's actually, uh, so I do uh, have a LinkedIn uh, account. My, uh, actually, my LinkedIn handle is Turnball, T U R N B A L L. Um, and if you just go to LinkedIn forward slash I N forward slash Turnball, um, you can connect with me there. I absolutely love connecting on LinkedIn. Um, less so on the Twitter and Instagram levels. Uh, not as into those social networks as I am just kind of focusing all my social media energies into LinkedIn at the moment. <laughs> I mean, that's still really good at the end. I'm definitely going to make sure to link all of that. But hey, one thing I do want to say is big, big, big thank you, Ben, for being on the show because you've definitely shared so many great stories and insights. Yeah, well, thank you, Perry. I appreciate it. You know, all the work you're doing. Um, and I, I just see these types of podcasts as being absolutely invaluable to give people that inside look on what is it like to be a professional software engineer and what is it like to, to make a living working with computers. Yeah, and we're all in the journey together. So <laughs> thank you again for being on the show and I'll catch you guys on the next one. All right, thank you.